Hey, and welcome back to Rad Country. I am (laughs) one of your hosts, Nick Rucker, and finally back from wherever you've been. Just a hiatus. We'll call it a hiatus for two episodes. I'm back, though. I am the other co-host, Justin. Justin, the rad, the wash to the rad, I guess. The the rad, the rad (laughs) of the rad country. Yeah. (laughs) We have a special guest so, today. Yeah, man. Like uh, last week we had uh, Sergeant Major Williams on, or not Williams, Sergeant Major Griffin on. And I was like, I've always wanted to have, or I've talked to Kel over the past few years, really, about just running in general. And I'll let him tell us all about what he does. But yes, all the way from Australia, Kel Walker is our special guest today and going to share some awesome news from the down under. (laughs) (laughs) So hi guys, how are we? Great. Fantastic. What's the weather like over in the States? Uh, It depends on which part you're talking. If you're talking the part we're in, it's cold today. It's cold? Yes. We have snow. I think hopefully it's the last bit of snow, but I don't know. Yeah. Can't ever tell. We had uh, had a few inches of snow this morning when we woke up. How fantastic! I'd I'd much rather snow than the amount of rain that we are having down here at the moment in Sydney. <laughs> I bet. So uh, at least you can go skiing in the snow. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, it's it's the scooping the snow that's the problem. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> getting out your driveway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Kel, I'm just going to have you do a quick introduction, man. Just tell us uh, tell us what you do now and kind of like who you are. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So I live in Sydney, Australia, um, in the Sydney's inner west in, in the suburbs, um, not about eight kilometres from the CBD, so really great place along the, uh, the harbour itself, so quite beautiful. I currently work at a golf course. Um, have been here for over 10 years as the administrator for the golf course. Um, prior to that, I've got 20 plus years of uh, defence and law enforcement in Australia. Uh, started off um, as a cadet back in when I was 13 uh, with the Air Cadets, Air Training Corps, as they were called at the time. Um, then uh, reached the maximum age there of 18 uh, and moved off to the Army Reserves initially. Uh, up in far north Queensland, Townsville. Um, about 1989, I went and joined the Navy full-time, the Royal Australian Navy, and I was an electrician um, aboard a Charles F. Adams class DDG, HMAS Hobart. Um, she was about 25 years old when I joined her. Uh, she was just going through a major refit where we... Technology. Oh, Sorry, Andy's guys. gone. There's, there's... Where'd you lose me? Oh, uh, where were we at? You were we, talking about. You were, you were explaining how the ship is going under or going under a um, Ref- reconditioning or something. Yeah, it was going through. Oh, God, I keep losing him. There you are. No, we're here. Um, yeah, so she was going through a 25 year refit and. Um, I ended up chronic seasick on it um, after the refit. 
So the career was pretty limited as to what I could do in the Australian Navy as an electrician. So I left and went home to far north Queensland, Cairns, and uh, joined the Army Reserves up there and got into intelligence and counterintelligence. Um, did that from pretty much 92 to 2000 when I joined the Air Force proper, the Royal Australian Air Force, as uh, security police and counterintelligence. Um, very busy time. I was based in Townsville at the RAF base there, RAF base Garbutt. And um, we just had the Bali bombings not long into my tenure up there in uh, Townsville. Um, and basically the Australian Federal Police at the time were heavily recruiting to try and deal with uh, the Bali bombings and the interviews and security uh, aspects of it all. So they tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to come across. And I thought, uh, you know, instead of dealing with uh, drunken soldiers from over at Laverack Barracks and the Air Force and stuff like that, I'd uh, try and get into some real stuff. So I joined the Australian Federal Police in 2003 and did a good five years there. Um, and then after that, uh, I, well, while I was there, I was working for um, at the airport, uh, doing basic drug investigations and security at the airport. I then got into Australia's largest money laundering investigation where we recorded $93 million laundered over a period of 18 months. And we made uh, about 107 arrests. And yeah, out of that 90, no, $93 million, we recovered about three quarters of it. So yeah, and then we wow. started doing some undercover work at the end. Uh, but unfortunately, the government at the time changed its direction in Australia and uh, decided to chase Paul Hogan instead of chasing money laundering. So a bit of a change in direction. So they disbanded the team task force that we were. And um, I decided that I had my son living with me and I had to sort of look at the hours that I was working and things like that. So I decided to try and get a day job where... I had time to spend with him, you know, and I wasn't working overnights or surveillance or things like that. So I ended up working here at the golf club and been here ever since. 2016, um, I started um, my coaching course for running and I decided that um, I was going to get into basically endurance running and that sort of thing and took up a coaching course and I've been doing it ever since and coaching a lot of young kids at the moment, all primary school. I'm coaching at a school just down the road here in um, Darlinghurst, near the city itself, uh, a girls' school, teaching them middle distance and cross country and teaching a few other older folk like myself that uh, are in the city to get through their first marathons and half marathons and 5Ks and things like that. And I really love it. Awesome. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> oh, there is so much there. So, are you yeah, sure we only have an so, hour? <laughs> oh, oh, way too much. <laughs> so I they nicknamed me Tri Service. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I want to start at the airport. Like I got to yep. know more about this ninety-three million dollars that went missing. So uh, yeah, so it was no, so basically what we did is we were a um, money laundering investigation, a task force comprised of um, a number of different agencies in Australia. So I was with the federal police. So we had the law enforcement powers. We worked with uh, the Australian uh, Transaction Recording Agency or AUSTRAC. Um, so they were uh, the reporting agency. We worked with um, 
the ATO, the Australian Taxation Office, and, and various different organisations all coming together to investigate basically four alternate money remitters, two in Sydney, two in Melbourne. Now, alternate money remitters are basically um, local businesses that um, don't have the same requirements that a bank does for reporting. And the way they work is you go into their store, you drop off a heap of money, they have friends over in Vietnam or whatever, in this case it was Vietnam, who you transmit a, a figure to them and say, um, Nick's coming over to get $10 million off you. Um, you've got $10 million in yours, you give it to him. Eventually we try and get the money back to you so that we balance our books. And what they had is they had a... So what he would do is he would uh, take the money around the security protocols at the airport and get it onto the plane and then uh, drop it off to the various remitters. So it was all coming from the drug uh, syndicates through these alternate money remitters in, um, in Cabramatta and Bankstown and a few other suburbs in Sydney. So, yeah, it was uh, challenging. Yeah. It was so, good fun. I bet. Man, that sounds like fun. Uh, so, what yeah. was the what was the big indicator? How did they start catching on to this that this was going on? I think it started off with a report that was made about the pilot himself. So, I joined the task force a little bit after it was already established and was starting to grow. Um, so, I wasn't there in the early days of how it actually was identified. Um, but when it was identified, it was only very small picture. And, um, you know, we had to work with our surveillance teams to get um, surveillance devices inside the shops, on the various cars of the uh, remitters, all these sort of things. And, um, you know, just do some hard yards surveillance sitting out there in cars at all hours of the night. And I, I remember one time we, um, the airline pilot who we thought was the remitter or that was doing the money. Uh, we got him coming from the airport once and we didn't know exactly where he was living, so we had to follow him. Um, we'd been trying to find him at all the locations that we knew of him for about eight hours that day. And then as we're all leaving, one of the teams picked him up. And then we had to race all over Sydney to try and, you know, join up and get together and pick him, you know, to trail him. And uh, we ended up losing him right at the end, but we found out that that's right near his house. So um, that was a lot of fun, a long day, but a real, the last, you know, probably hour and a half was probably the most fun, chasing him around all over the countryside. But, uh, yeah, so once we got him, you know, we got a little bit more intel and just kept building the intel. And um, we even started doing some undercover work. So we had some of the guys... Um, setting up as alternate remitters as well. So bankers, basically, and, and um, you know, with the um, legal devices that we have here in Australia through the bank um, to send some overseas to, you know, try and um, alleviate because we'd arrested the pilots so they had to find other ways of, you know, getting the money through. So we decided to help them out by putting it through the bank under, under our COVID means and track some of it to see where it was going over there and, see some of it and things like that. So, yeah, it was very, very good. It was exciting. It's just, it was a shame that it didn't keep going. And now it's actually coming back in from, I can hear in the media. So there's been a few, 
a few reports on the news that I sort of knew about at the time, and it's all starting to kick up again by the sounds. Has did was uh, at the time, I guess, was cryptocurrency a no. a factor in all of this? No, no. So this was uh, late late two early two thousand and ten sort of thing. Okay, around that sort of time. I would imagine that nuance complicates things now. I would say it would be a bigger factor nowadays. Yeah. Um, in in the way the, or the ease of movement of money. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely on the radar of um, money remitters because traditionally remitters would usually go to the bank, uh, go to um, casinos and things like that, and and put money through uh, the casinos. So they might approach you at a casino and see that you've got a few winnings on the table, and they might say, "Hey, look, I've got ten k worth of winnings here." I see you've got probably a little bit less than that. If I give you mine, um, you know, will you, you know, uh, go and cash them in and you can keep the difference? Mm-hmm. So it then becomes clean money because I'm the one that's transferring it through, not them. So, yeah. Uh, huh. But that's, that's, where, that's where your casinos usually try and are supposed to report and identify these sort of transactions and occurrences that are going on and things like that. But mm-hmm. they don't always do it. It's... Yeah, it's a business for them. They're trying to make money. They don't care. Yeah. Right. Right. <clears throat> so was with that and I guess all of your other time and service and everything else, which part do you look back on and say, man, that was the best uh, time and service? Was the, um, the, I'd say the Air Force. Yeah. I'd say that probably the Air Force and the, um, the Australian Federal Police were both the most enjoyable times. Um, both probably because they were a little bit more real time than some of the other parts. Mm. Um, you know, like when I joined the Navy, it was at the end of the first Gulf War. So um, we only had a couple of ships over there. I worked on ships to get them ready to sail over there. Um, we, you know, like we had one that had to replace a, a generator on the, on the ship and um, it you know, we worked solid for 48 hours to try and get her ready to go and eventually she sailed. But that's about as close as I got to that sort of action. Whereas in the Air Force, um, up in Townsville, I was working closely with the federal police and, you know, doing um, helping them with um, the statements that were coming back from a lot of the witnesses that uh, saw the bombings and, you know, things like that. So, and hence why they, you know, sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you come and join us? You know, we're looking, we're recruiting. And then, yeah, the federal police was a whole different range of things, you know, from the major money laundering investigation to basically drug um, couriers that are internals and stuff like that. So interesting. So the, the, and maybe I'm, I feel like I've read about this before that ballet explosion, uh, you want to explain that just a little bit, just to refresh my memory? Yeah, so it would have been, I think, around 2000, 2001. I'm not 100% sure of the actual time frame of it, but um, in Bali, in um, Kuta, which is the main population or main township of uh, Bali, Um very popular destination for Australians to travel over there because it's uh, cheap flights and, you know, cheap accommodation and stuff like that. So a lot of Australians travel over there and, you know, we go and party hard, especially in Cooter and stuff like that. And 
what they did is they actually set off a couple of bombs, minor bombs internally, um, to get people to rush out, and they ran out in front of the bigger bomb. Mm. And um, ah. you know, we lost we lost a whole heap of Australians, and it wasn't just Australians; there was a few Europeans and US and all that sort of stuff involved as well. But I think it was more Australians that uh, were killed. Um, so we had to, you know, get all the Australians that were repatriating back out of out of country to um, take statements from them that might have been around at the time that saw things to try and find who the bombers were. And I think it was about a couple of years later they actually located the mastermind behind it all, and he's sitting in jail in Bali at the moment. Huh. So. So, and what was on that, like, what was your part in all that? Was that just kind of tracking down the right people to ask questions to? And A little. It was more that they, because the RAF base is also the airport in Townsville. So it's a joint location. So what would happen is all the Bali flights would come into Townsville. they get off the plane and I'd be working with the federal police to take statements of people that came off the plane and we'd try and ascertain whether, you know, they saw anything or whether they, you know, were just in Nusadora or somewhere else and completely well away from the actual incident that happened and have no knowledge and then let them go. And, yeah, just try and build the profile and any evidence that we could gather through these, the statements or things like that and pass it back to the other investigators that were uh, on the lead of uh, chasing down the actual perpetrators uh, of the actual bombing. Oh. Sorry, Justin, I cut you off a little bit ago. Fascinating. No, I, I was actually going to go further back uh, because I don't know what it means to be a cadet at 13 years old. If, if, I'm, if I have any frame of reference here, it's like ROTC here. Yes. Um, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very similar. Very similar. So basically, as a cadet, what you do is, well, in the Air Force cadets, we'd, uh, we'd go to our, um, our little base, so to speak, or our hut, and um, we'd learn bits and pieces like aerodynamics, um, camouflage and concealment, you know, um, the basics of the military life, um, how to march, how to do drill, um, all those sort of things. And you just turn up and do that on a, a, a Tuesday night or a Friday night um, from, say, 7 till 10, so three hours. You'd sort of do that sort of stuff, you know, a number of um, parades. And you'd learn um, instructional techniques and you get promoted and you work your way up the ranks. I got to warrant officer, which is uh, probably the highest non-commissioned rank in um, the Australian uh, services. Um, so even in the cadets, we follow pretty much what the Air Force does uh, in their rank structure because we're basically just trying to uh, give an experience of Air Force life. And uh, you do um, two weeks a year um, a course or a, a training block on the actual RAF base and like um, a bit like uh, oh, just two weeks of experiencing the various jobs on a base. You know, you might go and work with the radio technicians, the armament technicians or the airframe fitters or security police or something like that. And you go and spend two weeks with them and you learn about what their job is about on a day-to-day -day basis. So you get a bit of an experience of 
if that is the sort of area that you want to look into in your future. Mm -hmm. So a bit like hard ROTC. Awesome. That's cool. So with your, um, uh, your job, what, what were you most interested in at that time? Do you remember? At that time, I wanted to be a pilot, like most kids in our days, these, these days. But uh, yeah, I just didn't have the academic history to, you know, get into it. You know, I needed to do uh, physics, science and all the full science, you know, backgrounds. Uh, I just would have been happy flying. But I loved getting hands. Yeah, I loved getting hands on, you know, so even even in the cadets getting out there in the bush and navigating around. I loved that. You know, I loved, uh, you know, the rifle range and all these sort of things, you know, just the physical aspects of it all. And I think that's why uh, I probably did so well in the Air Force Police and, and Federal Police because it was a little bit more hands-on than some of the other roles that I did. You know, like intelligence was fantastic. I loved knowing and, the, and you know, finding out about the information, which it did lead into the Air Force and, um, police history, but um, yeah, uh, I, I certainly did a lot better, um, more hands-on type jobs. So when I was doing my courses, I pretty much topped every course that I did, um, you know, with my initial employment training and stuff like that. So, um, but stick me in a classroom like a university and I sort of found it a little bit harder at times to sort of sit there and concentrate in the lecture room when people are bombarding you with information rather than a hands-on experience. I can relate to that. Yeah, they didn't do a yeah. very good job explaining in Top Gun that it required so much more than just showing up and looking cool. <laughs> well, you know, I could always do a fly pass, can't you? You know, it's not right. hard. <laughs> it's not hard and it's totally acceptable, right? That's it. That's it. And then you flex your muscles and play volleyball. Exactly. Like, yeah, this isn't hard, people. Uh, it's an easy life. <laughs> did uh, you said your your time, you know, just enjoying time out in the bush and everything like that? Is that something that you held on to through? I mean, even now, as you're getting into, you know, or you said you got into like endurance running and all of that, is that just being outdoors? Yeah. Is that just kind of a passion of yours? Yeah, I think so. Um, my partner and I um, regularly head up into the Blue Mountains an hour or so away from here and we just go for hikes, you know, especially in winter and stuff like that. We just love getting out of nature and reconnecting. And, you know, through COVID, what we had, you know, being locked down here in Sydney, um, it was so great when we finally did get out and back on the trails just to reconnect with nature and get that energy that we naturally derive from our surroundings. So, yeah, it was good to get out and do that sort of stuff. And, you know, I love running wherever I go and I've run over some amazing places like Greece and London and the US and around Washington was an amazing experience of running around through Arlington and past uh, the Pentagon and all these sort of different, you know, places that you see in the movies. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a great way for me. It's a great way of experiencing places. You know, you get to see a lot more when you're, you know, just running around the streets rather than just following all the tourist places as well. So. No, it's good. Yeah. Hey, I'd love to get out. I'd love, sorry, I'd love to get out camping a little bit more, but uh, I know my partner, she likes the luxury lifestyle, so I can't <laughs> see her with an outdoor shower or, <laughs> or digging a hole for a port loo or anything like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> she likes the fire stuff. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so don't feel bad whenever you reference the uh, Pentagon and places like that. Those are in movies for us too. 
So (laughs) (laughs) that's about, that's about as close as us Americans get to them as well. So. (laughs) Right. I I've never even been to, to DC. So. Uh, I I actually really love DC. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I love DC, you know, with the Smithsonian and everything else there. It's so much information and yeah, it's really, really cool place. Some great red uh, cafes too. We hope to make it. We have family there. So anyway, running is something that I envy. Uh, I'm envious of other people. I wish I was a runner. So maybe I should reach out and, 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 uh, seek out some coaching but yeah but just, everybody's a runner it's just understanding how to do it effectively it must be that then i'm gonna i'm yeah. trusting you here you're the professional no, honest, honestly <laughs> if, if you if you look at the young kids you know the five-year-olds six-year-olds and stuff like that and just watch them run they run naturally they run perfectly mm-hmm. it's just that we as we get older spend a lot of time doing what all three of us are doing here is sitting down and we lose it and then, and then it becomes yeah, a lot harder and then it becomes a lot harder and you just try and you go out too hard or you try and run too far and you end up sore and injured and you know it all becomes too yeah. complicated it's just a matter of just starting out as simple as a one minute run and one minute walk and just build it up from there do less more running less walking and just keep building and building and building so and that would, i i do you, oh go ahead I was just going to say, so if you had somebody who came up to you and had ran in years and they were just like, hey, I've just got two miles that I that's my goal ultimately is to be able to run two miles without stopping. Yep. How, how do you how do you approach that kind of training? So usually I would just find out a little bit about you, you know, what stopped you, why you're coming back, try and find out your motivation, your goals. And, you know, if you're distance like we are I, I probably you know just either send you uh you know a little plan of like starting out for a minute you know just go for a run for a minute who doesn't matter how fast how slow whatever just go for a minute walk for a minute and then we slowly build you up to maybe next week would be mate or the next run might be three minutes in a minute run a walk and things like that just keep building you up and building you up uh if you're with me uh, running beside me I might just start running and we just start talking and just see how you're feeling as you're running along and you know you might actually run the full two miles without even realizing just because we're going nice and slow and just chatting and distracting you or or things like that so there's a number of different ways that you can do it but the easiest way for anybody to start running again or start running if, if you never felt that you were a runner is literally the run walk method which is just start off slow run between light posts, run a block in, in the US, you know, and then walk the next block or, you know, go fully around it and sort of one side just run, next side walk, run, walk, you know, just walk your way around and just build up. Easiest way, start slow, build up. Don't go out there thinking that you can run a 15-minute 5K if, you, if you're just starting. You know, it's just it's not going to happen. You're going to injure yourself, right. you're going to blow up and you're going to sit there and go, this is so stupid, so hard, why am I doing this? But if you start, you know, there's that. And the other thing I've always recommended for anybody is to get into a group, find a group of people. A, it makes you accountable, so you keep coming back. And B, you chat and, you know, you get distracted. You're not mm-hmm. focused on how hard this is feeling at the moment or whatever. Or you see the person beside you, they're in the same boat. They're just starting out and they're feeling the same way as you are and you can start relating. So 
I, I definitely can relate to that part because, and as you could probably relate running in cadence in the military and going out like running six, seven miles, it was, it sucked, but it sucked for everybody at the same time. And, and so I guess cadence is not, it is. And especially whenever you're the NCO and you're the one that has to call cadence. Yeah. So that's, that's the worst because if you screw up, hey, everybody screws up. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wrapped up reading. uh, Well, I say I read, I listened to uh, Shoe Dog recently. And so I've been, that's, this is where like my interest in running has kind of come up. I listened to Phil Knight. He's super passionate about running uh, or was anyway, until he started walking later in his life. But either way, getting out, moving, uh, he puts a, really big emphasis on the equipment. So the shoes, obviously. Um, now, I don't know how much of that is, you know, him trying to sell Nikes or actual passion around the equipment itself. But I don't know, as a, and somebody who's in endurance running and teaches classes, how important is it to have the right equipment? The, what I found the best way to understand it is probably finding something that fits you. And it's comfortable to you. There's no point you going out if you're just starting out and getting the latest Nike Vaporfly's next percents with the carbon plate if you're not going to really get any benefit out of it, right? Now, everybody can get some benefit out of that sort of shoe because carbon is designed to flex. But obviously, if you're an Elikipchogi running at 20 kilometres an hour, the flex in the carbon is going to push you and propel you quicker and better than it is somebody who's running at eight kilometers an hour or whatever. I know you guys are in miles and it's a little bit more different, but yeah. So to give you an idea, Elliot Kipchoge was doing what a a kilometer in about 2.3 minutes, something like that. So it's ridiculous. And if you see the videos online that uh, with the super treadmill that they have at some of the events with people trying to match his pace and falling off and flying out the back back of it, shows you how quick he's actually running. So, but... (laughs) For me, I think the best advice is just find a a pair of shoes that are comfortable to you. They fit well. They don't leave hot spots on your feet or anything like that, especially if if you're going to get into endurance and, you know, really build up those miles in those shoes or those hours in those shoes. Uh, You definitely want to be in something that's comfortable and not going to, you know, create uh, hot spots, blisters, all those sort of things. Because let's face it, you know, when, when you start getting those, people don't like it. You know, it, Nick, as you remember in the service, you know, last thing you want is bad feet and, you know, poor boots that don't fit you and, you know, how uncomfortable it is going on a hike when you've got boots that aren't, you know, that are rubbing and you start getting blisters. And it's the same thing as when you're running along. Uh, you don't, you don't yeah. want that sort of stuff. So, yeah, um, if you can get to a, a running specialty store, you know, by all means, I recommend that over going to a general store, you know, Mm-hmm. because they're the experts. They understand the latest technology. Um, yes, listening to some influences is not bad because it gives you an idea, but that shoe might not suit you that they mm-hmm. recommend. So, yeah, just find something comfortable that fits. Let's go to a professional who's going to be able to actually fit your foot into a shoe. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. That makes sense. I think, I think the biggest change that's happened out there at the moment is the idea of... Um, the stabilizers in the shoes 
our foot is not designed to be stabilised. It's designed to rock. It has 42 bones in it, and it's all mm. about sensing where the ground is. So some of the shoes in the old days where, or not even old days, we're talking probably five years ago, they had the major support in here, which stopped you rolling. So mm -hmm. they tried to stop you pronating, et cetera. So I think more of a neutral shoe is a much better shoe for somebody to run. It allows the foot to do what it's supposed to do. So this might be a dumb question. No, uh, no dumb question. We weren't, <laughs> we didn't always have shoes. I, I was trying to work, figure out how to word this question. So no, you're right. uh, we didn't always have shoes and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to guess that maybe we weren't meant to have shoes to some degree or another, right? So 100%. people who run or hike or walk without shoes, are they, are they giving themselves an advantage? If that makes sense? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, the biggest thing that happens is because we do wear shoes so much now, our bodies are changing. So sure. for somebody to just turn around and go, I'm going to go for a 20 mile hike without shoes. You're probably going to do more damage to your body by doing that straight up than doing it in small increments. What I would suggest to people is every now and then just get out to the park, take your shoes off and just run around the park a little bit. That's the best thing you could do for yourself at any time. doesn't matter whether you're injured, whether you're not injured, just lets the feet do what they're supposed to do. And trust me, feel the feel of grass under your feet is so much better than a bit of concrete or bitumen. Yeah. So yeah, no, they do have an advantage, but you you have to build up to it. You know the sense. you know the fiber and five finger shoes. Yeah, you know people certainly did find that they felt better with them, but a lot more injuries occurred as well because people were going straight from the um, pronating shoes into five fingers zero drop shoes like bare feet, and the foot wasn't strong enough to do it. You'd have to build your feet up. Mm -hmm. that's that's what i would say well that makes sense yeah that's uh that, that was going to be my next question about the five finger shoes so that's i never owned a pair but i knew people that did and a lot of guys a lot of guys just bought them because he's like yeah i go fishing and they're just nice to have that kind of extra padding i guess because uh but that was always the big thing so do you have you trained any ultra marathon runners? No, I haven't trained any ultras, um, but ultras is probably no different um, to training a marathoner. Now, the only difference of it really is the distance that they're running. Now, there, there's also a very difference between a trail ultra runner and like a road marathoner. Um, because on a trail, you've got your hills and your valleys and your gullies and everything else like that. So you might not run the entire distance because you might walk up a hill, you might run down the other side. On a marathon on, say, New York, the only real hill you get is getting onto a bridge and over the bridge, right? So you're running flat all the way, right? You don't get a real respite, whereas ultras do. Uh, yes, they carry food. Their paces are certainly nowhere, you know, unless you're getting at the top level of ultra marathoning. But generally, you won't run as fast on an ultra as you would trying to run on a, a, um, a road. So um, 
we have one here, we call it the six foot track. It goes from Katoomba to um, one of our, um, or goes out into the bush basically to a small town, uh, which it has glowworm caves and a lava tube caves and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, it's about 43 kilometers. So it's considered an ultra because it's longer than a marathon. Um, the elites probably do it in about 2.30 to 2.45 compared to probably 2.15s that they can do on the road, 2.10s. But they're elites. The average person is probably doing, you know, fours to fives on that sort of a run compared to what they probably mm. do is threes to fours. What's what's your opinion on ultra marathons? Are they, I mean, aside from like saying, hey, I did that, is is it harder on your body than probably necessary? Or what? where do you stand on that? No, I think uh, an ultra marathon is the, the new marathon of, of our society these days. Um, more and more people are doing marathons. So it's not the 1% of people in the past that used to say that I can call myself a marathoner now. It's probably getting a little bit higher. It's still not quite that that um, bigger gap, but uh, ultras is probably the new future of, of running. But um, ultras don't it, they don't suit everybody, and it's a lot harder to train for an ultra if you don't have hill. Well, especially in Australia, because most of ours are all on the hills and stuff like that. Um, we don't have access to a lot of the hills. You know, I, I've got to drive an hour and a half to go and train and. Um, most of the training around my place is pretty flat. I'd probably have a five to 10, maybe 20 mil, uh, 20 meter elevation throughout the whole run. Um, uh, whereas an ultra marathon, you might go four, five, 600 elevation change throughout the whole run. Uh, maybe even more if you're over at UTMB in, um, in France there, uh, which is the uh, pinnacle of, uh, ultra marathoning at the moment. And, hmm. uh, you know, the other thing with ultras, they tend to be self-sufficient. So you have a few checkpoints, but most of the way you have to provide all the uh, support and, and food and nutrition. You know, they, they'll have water, they'll have some food at the checkpoints, but in between you've got to look after yourself. Whereas, you know, like in New York, you probably have a uh, drink station every two miles or something like that. So um, you have a lot more support. Sorry? How long are these ultra marathons? Like how they how can go up to a hundred mile. Wow. Yeah. Well, there are, the, there's there's one in Utah, I think that's actually two fifty. Yeah. I think. Wow. Yeah, I was about to say there's two hundred plus as well, but the average is usually about um, fifty to a hundred miles. Okay. But it technically, I think it is considered an ultra anything over twenty six point two. I think exactly. that is correct. So yeah. this, uh, I think it's David Goggins, right? I think Lex Friedman. I don't know if you guys listen to either one of those two. Uh, they do that four by four by four. Four by four to the eight. Yep. So that's kind of like an ultra marathon, I guess, spread out over two days, right? I, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's four miles every four hours over forty eight hours. I think. As far as I understand it, I've never done it. Yep. Yeah, I haven't done it as well, and. Like, like I said, the, the biggest difference with coaching somebody, anything over a half marathon is, is the mental. Mm -hmm. It's all mental. You, once you've done a half marathon, you can do a marathon. It's just trying to get your head around the fact I've still got 20, uh, sorry, 13.1 miles to go. 
Okay. And when you get into an ultra, you know, you, you might be out there for 24 hours. You might be out there for 48 hours, depending on how quick or slow you are. And you got to get past the fact that I'm running through sleep that I would normally have. And, you know, you got the mental block of, you know, two o'clock in the morning when it's, you know, two degrees Celsius for us over here or whatever it might be for you guys. But, you know, you see it cold and you're wet, <laughs> yeah. yeah, cold and yeah. wet. And, you know, you're just sitting there going, I could be home in bed. Why am I out here in the middle of nowhere with no one around me except for this headlight on my head looking at a dirt track that I can't see anything around me? And it's just all yeah. It could be a perfect day. I think, I'm asking myself the same question. So I, yeah, try, look, I do it on, even I've, on a marathon, I've, I will do it. I've gone a half a block and I'm wondering what I'm doing with my life. So I, I was, I was there I, on Saturday doing a 5k. So what, uh, what do you recommend? I mean, you said it's mental. I, I can, I totally understand that. Um, in terms of, I'm sure breathing methods are, are, like kind of big, right? I mean, is there something, what particular breathing method that you recommend typically or? Look, the easiest way is to, the best way to run anywhere, anytime, doesn't matter what distance you'd run, is to run relaxed. So, you know, having nice relaxed shoulders, relaxed upper body, standing tall. But when you're breathing, you want to breathe into your belly. So fill your stomach, fill your stomach up rather than your chest. So you're getting more air into your actual lungs than you are any other way. So what I tell any of my students when they're first starting out and having troubles is put one hand on your chest and one hand on your stomach and try and lift your bottom hand up, your stomach hand up by breathing in right into your diaphragm and filling those lungs up. But staying relaxed is the easiest way by okay. any means. And look, mentally, if you're finding it tough, just turn around and go, okay, well, there's a lamppost ahead or I can see the next corner, I'll run to that corner. And then when, usually when you get to that corner, you're not feeling so bad like you were before and you go, well, I can still keep going. Okay, let's pick another smaller target that I can see. Okay, next, next is basketball courts up the road. I know that. I can get there. Yeah, I'll run to there and then I'll stop. And then you run to there and you might feel, yeah, you've got to break it up. Break it really into larger goals into smaller goals. Absolutely. If you start getting too far ahead of yourself, sometimes you will just be overwhelmed by how far I've got to go. You know, like you might be two miles into a hundred miler and you sit there and go, I've got 98 miles to go. That's just going to blow your head unless you do it regularly. So it's just small snippets. You know, if you're doing a hundred miler and you know, it might be your first one, just checkpoint to checkpoint. Yeah, I can get to this checkpoint and we'll see how we go after that. I'll get a little breather there. Next checkpoint and keep going. I feel like I should be paying for this session. <laughs> <laughs> I love sharing. So, I love sharing what I've learned. So with guys that I train um, in the military still, um, what whenever they come to me and say, hey, I'm trying to get a better two-mile run, uh, which is still what we're required to do for our test, the thing that I always tell them, I – I just always say, Hey, it's, it's like a rep scheme. Like you're lifting weights. I was like, let's break it down into sizable chunks to where it's like, Hey, let's say 16 or eight times you have to go around this. So let's get really good at one time. And then after the fact, it's like, then next week it's like, okay, now we're going to add another round and then just give it everything you got. And then by the end of it, it's like, they 
for one, the big thing is I always felt like was, Hey, if I haven't ran in like six months and then I have to go out and run a two mile for my test, my legs get fatigued faster than really anything yeah. else. Yeah. And then once my core goes, then my posture goes and right. my back starts hurting. <laughs> and yeah. that's one of my backers. And then the breathing and everything else goes. Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. And look, if you want to try and get faster at anything, you know, you need to a figure out what your goal is, whether it be a 400 meter, you know, track race or whatever else. And you want to sort of qualify, let's say for the Olympics or whatever. And you, so find out what the time is, whether that's 24 seconds around the track or whatever else you want to try and start building up over shorter distances at that speed and get used to being at that speed. Because if you sit there and just run at, you know, eight, eight miles an hour for argument's sake, you're certainly not going to be doing 24 seconds around a track. You're going to get comfortable at that pace. You're never going to improve. You're never going to change. The, the biggest thing with running and learning to run effectively is the principle of overload. So you overload your body, right, by going harder and faster, and then you give yourself time to recover. And when you're recovering, that's when your body adapts and you keep doing that. It's like anything, you know, it's like lifting a deadlift, you know, you, you'll do one. And as you get stronger, you do two. And then you go three and four and same sort of thing with running. It's, it's really no different. It's learning to be uncomfortable in the uncomfortable, I guess. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I'm pretty interested too in learning like the mental side of stuff and what kind of training or what do you tell people, Hey, this is, at some point in a marathon, I mean, I've the farthest I think I've ever ran is probably like 16 miles. And I know that there was a point in there during that run that I was like, there was a crisis going on in my head that was like, <laughs> we need to get out of this situation right now because thing, bad things are going to happen. And it's funny how what your brain will tell you. Your brain will tell you that like, because I was out running by, out running by myself. It was like, hey, yep. we're getting so far away that if we got hurt, we, there's nobody could come find us. We should go back. Yep. That's what my brain's telling me. <laughs> it, it will tell you everything. It will do everything to stop and protect itself. Yes, 100%. But I, I think the easiest way to do it is you've, you've just got to try and break it down, okay? Um, say you're in the middle of a marathon, you've signed up for the marathon, you've paid for your, your money for the marathon, just got to say, start saying to yourself a few different mantras, you know, okay. You'll, you'll see, some, you know, if you're doing a race, you'll see some of those signs out there, you know, you paid for this. Uh, so, <laughs> so enjoy it. You paid for this. Yeah. <laughs> or others, you chose to do this, you know, you're, you're putting yourself through this hell. But it's not far off that is understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and when when you're in those deep, dark times, it's it's that process of sort of just coming to understanding okay what is my motivation for doing this is it my family is it because i want to be healthier i want to be fitter is it because i want to challenge myself or whatever it is and try and find there we go technology yeah no. yeah so yeah, I, like, I'm a... just trying to find that motivation um you're not going to die you you're never going to die your body's always going to tell you that you are it's just yeah. just going to self-protection but break it down into smaller groups, smaller bite sizes, 
Um, remind yourself of your reasons or who you're doing it for or, or things like that. And, yeah, just pick a, pick a target. Let's, let's just go to that next tree. Let's go to the next corner. Let's, let's go a little bit further. If you're in a race, pick a buddy that's running beside you. He's probably going through exactly the same thing you are and just talk to each other and try and distract yourselves of what you're doing and one step in front of the other and one, one mile at a time. Try not to overwhelm yourself. But you're right. Your brain will do all sorts of things to <laughs> get you out of it. That is. Yeah, it was, it was always better when I was running with other people uh, because, because you knew that you weren't the only one going through what you were going through. And you, can, and you can only go as fast as the slowest man on the team. So, yes. <laughs> which, Definitely in the military. I just, yeah, I always made it a point. I didn't want to be the slowest guy so I could get a break. So. That's what 90% of us would all do. You don't ever want to be the slowest one, but you also don't want to be the fastest one either. So, Right, right. That you want to be in the middle of the pack, nice and cruisy. <laughs> At least in the military anyway. Yeah. Justin, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to say that's super um, – it, it's it makes sense for other – parts of life. So I'm not a runner. So I have to, I'm trying to like make sense of this in other ways that I can relate to. And one of the ways that I can relate to that is through the business that I own. And actually, you know, I'm still super early stages. So it's the whole thing feels like, you know, a marathon in that, you know, I just got to pace myself and, you know, you're, you talk to, you know, hitting smaller goals with the bigger goal in mind and things like that. Because if you look at it, the whole picture it becomes really overwhelming. And then your brain does the same exact thing. It starts to tell you, you know, you're messing this up, you're losing, you're not making enough headway, you should quit, you should turn back, you should go back to corporate America versus, you know, doing this thing on your own. And so I can relate in that regard. No, you're 100% correct, you know, and that's one of the things that I do love about endurance running. And that is, it shows you that you can do so much more than you think you can, mm. you know, and it is a true indication of uh, an example of life. You know, you start off small, like you said, and you build up and eventually you get to your goal and you think, you know, this is awesome. This is amazing. And then you challenge yourself again and find something else to go. And that's one thing about running that is, is so true to life. And you go through the same battles. Yeah. How many marathons do you run in a year? I usually do maximum two. So this year I have Gold Coast in July, and then I've just signed up yesterday to the Melbourne Marathon in October. When you do those, okay. is it is it running the marathon, and then are you immediately training for the next one? So a little bit like track and field, um, you will have an annual training plan, or some people will. In my case, I do. I have an annual training plan, and, and you basically – you know, you might do three, four weeks build up and you drop off a little bit. Three, four weeks build up, drop off a little bit. And you keep doing that. You hit your race, drop off a bit more, and then you come up again. And you're doing this all the way through, throughout the year. So you're not constantly trying to do that and, you know, overload yourself. You do need some time to allow the body to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, generally a marathon um, program can be anywhere from 12 to 24 weeks, depending on your experience level and, um, you know, your uh, your goal. 
your goal target and stuff like that. So you might do, like I said, 24 weeks and that, then you go another 24 weeks for the next one. And in there, you might have some half marathons or 5K races or things like that just to sort of test where you're at and have a little bit of fun as well. Yeah. Awesome. Rather than training the whole time. Would, um, I guess with the marathons and, and all of that, the, I think to me, it always comes back to like nutrition and uh, what you're eating. And also like, are you staying away from the sodas and drinking water instead? Um, because I think honestly, my biggest thing, and I just uh, hired a nutrition coach uh, a month or so, just over a month or so ago. And it was probably, this has been, the past month has been the most intelligent I've felt about eating um, in, in the longest time. But I also, you know, using my body as, as a means of producing energy and uh, feeling it in that manner. And honestly, now it feels like my brain, my body, everything is just firing on all cylinders. So if I were to say, hey, I need to go run a marathon, now would be the time to do it because I'm actually eating <laughs> what I'm supposed to be eating. But whenever, whenever you're giving your training plans, how much are you stressing on nutrition and, and hydration? Yeah, look... I'm not a qualified nutritionist, so I don't um, try and force that on to any of my clients because I, I don't really want to give them information that might not suit their dietary or their body requirements. Um, I usually basically, like you just said, is a, give them advice on, you know, it's like trying to fuel a car. You put bad fuel in a car, you're going to get bad economy, you're going to get um, bad reaction out of your car. I think I've lost. No, you're there. Good. Um, yep. So the best way to be is to put good nutrition, good fuel into your car to get the best results that you want out of it. So um, in saying that, I don't expect, and you'll see a lot of elite athletes and stuff like this, they won't totally um, be 100% clean. You know, uh, a lot of them will turn around and they'll have a bowl of ice cream at night. Uh, you know, they'll give themselves a treat for... Uh, for all the work that they've done, but they're not going out and having, you know, supersized McDonald's for lunch. And then, you know, you might duck down to um, Taco Bell's for dinner or things like that. And then expect to train and, and run a, a effective race later on, you know, because you do have that sugary haze in your head, you know, or mm -hmm. living completely on, on soda, the same sort of thing, you know, um, I think sort of an advantage that we have in Australia, we have a lot more uh, no sugar products here in, in Australia than uh, we used to. So it's, um, it's, it's just trying to keep people uh, a little bit more aware of what they're, what they're doing. Um, you need to be able to say to the client that, you know, to get the best out of your next session, you need to be fueled and hydrated prior to the session. Whether you actually eat hours before the run or the session doesn't really matter. As long as you've got enough from the night before, right, to keep you going through that session, fantastic. If you've got time to get up early and have a nice meal, say an hour before or a decent breakfast, 
you'll be fine when it comes to the session because you'll have enough energy to get through the session. And there will be times where they can actually see it themselves because they'll turn around and go, yeah, I didn't really eat well last night or I didn't have breakfast. And then you go, well, how did you feel in that session? They go, oh, that was really, really tough. And then you'll turn around and they'll come back a couple of days later and they had a great lead into it, you know, good meal last night, good sleep, everything else like that. And then you say, how are you feeling in that session? And they go, yeah, that was pretty good. I really enjoyed it. I felt strong. I felt powerful. And then you go, but do you remember what you were like the other week when you didn't eat well and you didn't sleep well? And they go, yeah. And I go, well, that's, that's what you need to do is try and stay in that sort of frame that you were in last night rather than what you were in last week. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have people, I remember um, years ago, I was, you know, I had fitness goals and things like that. And I would actually keep a notebook and I would record what I was eating and how it made me feel from day to day. And, you know, the timing of some of that stuff too, uh, from whenever I was going to go to the gym, you know, Hey, you know, a quarter cup of sunflower seeds might be really great right before I go to the gym. Um, do you encourage people to do stuff like that just to, so that they know, you know, regardless if you're, whatever your diet is, at least you can kind of point back to, Hey, this is what I did three days ago. I felt like shit when I ran, um, but today, this is what I did, and I felt much better type thing. Absolutely, absolutely. All the elites use diaries. Mm. Every single elite runner out there will use a diary either focused on their actual training and how they felt through the training or incorporating their diet, et cetera, as well. So I absolutely, I use it myself. I use a diary. It's great to, um, you know, flick back every now and then and look at a session that you might have had where you had six hours sleep or three hours sleep and how you performed compared to, how you, you know, when you were better rested, et cetera, that you felt better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and diaries are awesome, especially if you are tracking it. But you don't even need a, a written diary. You can use um, MyFitnessPal and stuff like that, um, apps. There's plenty of apps out there. Um, you know, Garmin has its own basic nutrition section as well. So, you know, you can, you know, lots of different apps out there these days are all you know, trying to incorporate the two aspects of it all because it is so important, you know, not just for performance, but just our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed, um, and the, uh, mainly the changes, because I do, I get up at probably, I want to say 3.45, almost 4 in the morning to uh go work out it's the only quiet time that i get in the house uh, yep, yep. <laughs> and and uh i'll go work out then and i i can tell and I've, I've got one of those whoop whoop straps i'm not sure if you've seen that or not but yep, yep. it's it it's pretty pretty accurate on whether or not i've recovered well enough to go work out the next day um and usually so i got sick a few days ago and I was actually doing the podcast and I felt myself get sick during the podcast. I, I, I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And uh, the next morning I wake up and my whoop says that I slept seven hours, but I only recovered 16% uh, from yesterday. And that's just like how accurate it's like, Oh, it knows now when I'm sick um, and knows that I just need to stay in bed today. <laughs> which which is easy to use as an excuse it is but, easy to uh, use as an excuse but it's definitely well worth listening to your body that's for sure if 
you know, like I, I occasionally get migraines and it's usually my body telling me that oh, I need to stop. I need to recover. Um, so it, I'll end up in bed for, you know, half the day, whatever, you know, sleeping and recovering. And then I'm fine, you know, a couple of days later and back, back to normal. But it's, it's basically your body. If you listen to your body properly, it will tell you everything you need. You know, like if you're craving a steak for argument's sake, you know, you might be la- lacking iron and then you, you, you know, have a bit of steak or whatever. That's I. That's what uh, my mom always used to tell me. She was like, uh, uh, whenever I would say, "Man, I'm really just want sugar right now," and she's like, "Oh, you're dehydrated. You need to go drink some water." And <laughs> which then I, then I would, and that sugar craving would go away. So, yep. absolutely, yeah, and that's the biggest one. You know, like um, you know, a lot of people when they go out drinking and stuff like that, you know, they they come home and they go, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. They're actually dehydrated. It's just your body wants some nutrition to actually get over the, you know, the poisons, so to speak, that we put it into our body through alcohol. So yeah. mm-hmm. liquid IV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, honestly, let's, I, I want to take this conversation just to Australia in general, because I've personally oh. Sorry. <laughs> keep dropping so, out. Don't know why. Maybe the rain. <laughs> um, so I wanted to take this conversation completely off the rails of what we've been talking about because neither of us, I don't think unless J- Justin says so, but I don't think e- either of us have been to Australia and it's, the closest I've gotten in the past few years was at work. We, ha- we brought on a dealer um, that, that does foundation work uh, from Australia. I don't remember where they were at exactly, but um, what's it like right now? I mean, all I picture, I mean, all we, like whenever you refer to uh, the Pentagon and this, like you see in movies, all I've seen is Crocodile Dundee, and that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> oh, man. No, no. What we actually do is we have uh, kangaroos out the front, and we uh, we don't drive cars. We drive kangaroos. I've seen videos of some badass kangaroos. I just need to know oh, yeah. if they're real. No, no, they're real. They're real. They oh, can, my they, gosh. They, very, they can be very vicious. They can be very vicious, especially the red kangaroo. They can stand at least six foot tall. Um, and when they get on okay. their back legs, they can do some serious damage. But so it was yeah. the it was the newest special. I can't remember what streaming service it's on. One of them, whatever. Will Smith did it, and he did an episode in Australia. And I don't know if it was the Red Kangaroo or not. I should have looked that up before this conversation to actually ask. But yes, it would like rear up and on its tail, I think. Yep. Or or use its tail as kind of like a a, a pivot, a brace almost. Yep. And then just let the other kangaroo have it. Yep. And they would do these boxing matches almost to like establish territory yeah, yeah. or dominance. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. wow. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's there's a there's a funny saying that we have in Australia that everything's trying to kill us. Ah. We have we have the top ten dangerous spot uh, snakes in the world are here. Um, most of them are here. We got saltwater crocodiles up in far north Queensland. We have Stingers, blue bottles, uh, all that sort of stuff. Everything's trying to kill us out here. Emus, cassowaries, you know, they, they, they can be aggressive. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, no, we've got a lot of things around Australia that uh, challenge us, but generally, you know, we're a little brother of the US or yeah. the UK, you know, everything's basically the same, you know, except we drive on the other side of the road. Um, we're upside down to you guys, so I sh actually should be on my head because we're down <laughs> under. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, so but it's, it's, so it's, the, the, I think uh, my thought was always like you guys have pretty hefty um, amounts of tarantulas, I think, of some sort. Well, not tarantulas, but we have funnel webs, we have redback spiders, we have white tailed spiders, we have a lot of uh, de decent spiders that can cause a lot of sickness and, and um, problems. Uh, we have bird eating spiders, which are at least the size of my hand. Um, yeah, all sorts of things like that. You know, there's just a lot of animals around that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't the uh, kindest of animals that we have. Let's put it that way. But then we have some cute so, ones like koalas and echidnas and uh, wombats. And so, with these spiders and and kangaroos, what, uh, how often are you thinking you're having these interactions? Like, are you running into these things? Not that often. Not not unless you're in a country area. You know, like in the city, we most people in the city would only see them in the zoos or things like that, or or the bigger parklands, national parks, things like that. Um, if you're in a smaller country town, yeah, you'd, you'd have interactions with them a lot more. Um, sometimes I'll come into your yards looking for food, things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot more common in the bush, for sure. Mm -hmm. So the, I remember one of those spiders and the guy that came here to train was telling me about a spider that, like, digs a big hole and it'll live yeah, underground. Funnel web, and he was like, "Yeah, you'll be digging a hole, and you'll dig into a thing of them." And he's like, "Yeah, you don't want to do that." No. <laughs> I just remember. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Uh, so, do you go out? Like, I know you say the countryside; these smaller, like little, probably villages. I'm assuming towns. Yeah. Um, and go out and visit. Is it just kind of like here where? Yeah. Where I grew up in a, a town of like 500 people and now I'm in the big city, I guess. Yep. And uh, basically yeah, yeah, the same no, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No different. We love to travel. Um, Australians are, you know, we're an island and isolated from the rest of the world and we love travel. And, you know, you'll find um, Australians traveling all over the world and spending lots of time in different places. Um, like I said, we're due to head off. Um, very shortly, we're going up to the mountains uh, for Easter, just for the weekend away. Um, we're going to London in May for my birthday and a close friend of ours' wedding. Um, you know, we're going to Uluru, which is the uh, big rock in the centre of Australia, or what used to be known as Ayers Rock. We're going there for my daughter's 21st later in the year. So we travel a lot. Um, the last couple of years, probably more Australians have travelled around Australia than they have in a long time. Uh, but generally we do, like we'll head, we'll duck over to New Zealand uh, for a weekend because it's a three-hour flight from Sydney. Uh, we'll go to Bali, it's six hours away. We'll go to Asia, you know, um, Malaysia, mm. Singapore, um, Hong Kong, you know, any of the Asian countries like that, Tokyo. We, we travel everywhere. 
Yeah. So how has, how has COVID affected you guys? Like, are you still under pretty heavy restrictions now or? We're we're pretty much all open now. So all our borders have opened up. Um, Each state locked itself down when it had a number of cases or if a state like New South Wales had a lot more cases than others, the other states would lock us out and things like that. So we've only just completely opened up internally and we're starting to take tourists at the moment, um, as long as they're fully vaccinated, etc. cetera. Um, so we're starting to open up and we're actually starting to be allowed to travel as well ourselves. So um, mm. I think New Zealand's still not. Uh, it's still one of the few countries that is completely locked down to everybody else. Uh, and if you do go into New Zealand, you have to isolate for at least a week, I believe. So um, mm. it's challenging, but... Um, we certainly haven't seen the sort of impact that you guys have had. We've had um, uh, earlier this year or late, no, what was it, about June last year, um, we thought we were on top of it all and then we had the new Omicron variant come through and that changed, locked us all down again. So we're now just starting to live with it, I guess, is the best way to sort of explain that. So we realised that... Um, we're not going to be able to isolate forever uh, to combat this. Um, mm-hmm. Economy's got to keep going. You know, we have to keep, you know, generating an income and paying our bills and things like that. So we're now starting to live with it. We still have some restrictions like masks uh, in airports and, you know, public, pay, um, public transport places and stuff like that. We used to have to sign in everywhere we went so that they could help with tracing. That's, that's just been stopped. Um, we're about... 95% double vaxxed in Australia and we're about 40% triple vaxxed, I think, for most of us. So we're certainly um, getting there, but the advantage we've always had throughout this whole thing is that we're an island, so we can actually uh, close off our borders to everyone and try and protect ourselves a little bit more. Mm. So the... <clears throat> As far as all that went with COVID, and I'm sure you probably watched, I'm sure it's like us. We watch News of Australia. It's the most extreme thing ever. Yep. Um, you get you guys are getting beaten with batons. Yep. And uh, the helicopters were military. stopping people. Yeah. It was it was craziness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's like small things get exaggerated and, and made to look like it's the world's worst things, but I'm sure it's exactly the same for our, what we're seeing of you guys and, you know, all the issues our, that are happening ex- over there. Except for ours are all true. That's probably all true. <laughs> one, but, one big shit you, show. You here. love storming the Capitol, don't you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> See? And uh, that's that's what we got. I mean, that's those, those are the kind of people that we're producing nowadays. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you yeah, know, I, I, you're a much bigger country. You have a lot more diff- different, diverse um, population, I guess. You know, it depends on, you know, the state you're in and whereabouts in that state and, th- you know, things like that. Uh, you know, obviously the South has its history and the North is a bit different. And you're going to get a whole range and a mix of people and a mix of views. And, you know, you have a lot bigger population than us, that's for sure, even though you cover the same land size as what we are. Mm. The, well, there's uh, fewer things killing us. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 
I now understand why you had to learn how to run is because of all the, right. e, the emus and the uh, right. kangaroos. I'll tell you, kangaroos I will run, the drop I'll base. become a runner tomorrow if I see a spider that's as big as my hand. <laughs> oh, trust me, man. last thing you want is when you're when you're humping through the bush and you come across a spider web and all of a sudden you go oh my god what's in this <laughs> no thank you yeah. <laughs> no definitely so, not. The, uh, um, so all with that i went over to germany recently for a couple of weeks and uh and the, the same thing was pretty much all the borders were open and we, of course, I was going for the military, but so we got, I think we got checked on the flight there for our vaccination and all that stuff. And then I was never asked for it again. But if you went out to public in, in the cities, you had to have a mask, you had to have proof of vaccination with you to get in anywhere. And that was way more extreme than the United States was, where it's been pretty relaxed um, really the whole time. But, um, so one quick question just for you. Um, what do you think of all this stuff that's going on in Ukraine right now? To be honest, I think Putin's an idiot, you know, he's just, I don't know what his idea is or what he's trying to achieve, whether he's trying to create destability in the, in the world or what he's trying to do, but I feel sorry for the Ukrainians, you know, they're being targeted for, you know, unreasonable re means, you know, you've got these corridors open and, you know, they're, they're told to attack the corridors. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's only going to cause more, more trouble in the world. And I think other countries like North Korea and uh, China are all watching this and wanting to see, you know, what the West does and whether we stand, stand strong together or whether we crumble and do nothing. Mm. And then they'll make their moves. So I don't know. I don't know where it's heading, to be honest, but I don't think it's good. Well, that that's my whole outlook on it. I think that Russia right now is kind of a probe to see what everybody else is going to do before the actual big dogs get into the fight. Mm. Um, and I think that that's exactly what they want. They're trying to provoke all of us at the same time, it seems like, because yeah. right where they right where they knew it would affect us is is going after somebody that's weaker um, yeah. and that didn't ask for it ultimately. Yeah. And then, honestly, you know, I, I'm surprised personally that we've not gotten involved at, yet at this point, um, and or somebody hasn't and stepped in and said, "Hey, you can't do this. We got it." Um, yeah. Because I think it's mainly, there was nothing provoked about it. There was, it's, it's all been, from what I see on social media and everywhere else, just like everybody, I get the same news source from yep. everyone else. But, you know, it, it looks like there's more civilians that are just trying to, you know, lead their daily lives that are just all of a sudden finding themselves in the middle of a war. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, you're you're you'd be able to relate as well. Clear back to probably Desert Storm and everything else. But when all that was going on, it was like, well, you would hear about those things, but if you really wanted to learn something, you had to read about it in the newspaper, you yeah. know. And and most of the times it was pretty accurate. Whereas now, 
Um, you have news outlets that are telling you what you want to hear or they think you want to hear. Yeah, yes. That's exactly. It's, yeah. it's incredible how much information is there. I've been watching so many videos and reading so many articles like daily, uh, the Wall Street Journal, you know, I read, read the articles that are posted there and it, it is unfortunate how much I, I say misinformation, but I don't know what's in misinformation or not. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems to me, I agree with you, Kel, that it seems that Putin has just gone kind of off of his rocker or <laughs> the even scarier part is he hasn't gone off of his rocker and he knows exactly what he's doing where maybe this is a probe to show, hey, how destabilized is the West uh, when it comes to like their unified decision-making. Yeah. So I think it's it's a really difficult place for, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, national leaders uh, to find themselves right now. And the sanctions, in yeah. my complete civilian opinion, uh, the sanctions seem to be maybe a little bit too little, too late type uh, thing and it the only reason I think that is because if if you consider the impact that some version of cyber warfare could have on the rest of the world's economy and Putin doesn't seem to be personally shook up uh, by the sanctions makes me kind of wonder and like I said this is kind of like my own tinfoil hat mm -hmm. uh, thought here makes me kind of wonder does he have something else up his sleeve where he doesn't really need to be worried about these things? Yeah, I, I, I guess it's one of these funny things, you know, because we do look back, you know, to um, Desert Storm and, you know, the other parts where we've all jumped in, you know, to fight the battle for these other countries or, you know, the population or whatever else. But this one, we're sort of thinking, oh, have we learned from that? And sort of stepping back and going, well, we're not going to jump in and fight. We're going to let the country try and defend itself initially, but we'll provide support and whatever we can do. I don't know which is right. I don't know which is wrong, but it's almost like that's what's happened is we're looking back and going, well, Afghanistan and Iraq, this is what happened. Do we want that in this situation? You know, we are dealing with Russia of all things, you know, that has a number of weapons that we don't want to play around with and he could easily use them anytime. And do we want to go down that path or do we, you know, go back to a world war again and everyone get involved? It's one of those things, and yeah, you the know, potential you, for a third world war feels. <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to be careful how I say this, yeah, be sensitive to the people who did experience that firsthand. Exactly, but as, as in terms of being here in the United States, you know, that the world wars didn't necessarily affect us in our home at the homeland, um, no. but it feels like a third version of this could absolutely affect us. Um, especially, like I said, if we, if we start implementing uh, types of cyber warfare. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. The, um, and with just kind of Russia, just kind of being the puppet currently. I mean, let's look at it. It's armed militia in Ukraine and some, and an army, a small army, not, not very big. Um, if, no. if Russia really, Russia has the manpower, Russia has the firepower, they could annihilate those cities if they really wanted to. Like, let's just be completely honest. The guy has nukes. So he's got 
to step down until you get to a nuke. He's got everything at his disposal. So to me, it doesn't make sense that like he's in what I've kind of come up with. It's like, hey, send send those dumb guys out there that have been wanting to run a humanitarian mission for a while. And let's just let them free. And so you see all these really just mistakes, like like Hmm. common mistakes. It's coming from the experience of a country that hasn't been at war for a long time. And they're still using outdated tactics and maybe mm-hmm. watching some videos of us in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they're not really, I don't know, I, maybe they're just getting their feet on them, you know, to see like, hey, all right, so now let's send the cavalry in and really take it over if they're going to let us yeah. scoot, uh, scoot by. I think <laughs> I saw... Was it yesterday? Could have been today. I don't know. They all kind of all the headlines, all the articles blend together now at this point. I told Nick earlier we could probably do a different episode on Ukraine every day. Um, but they were <laughs> the Russians were recruiting the Syrians because of their urban uh tactical advantage. I guess they just fought in urban wars yep. more often than Russia has and have whatever met their own levels of success that way. Uh, whatever, however you want to define that. But anyway. <clears throat> To, to maybe help with this armed militia um, that's going on in Ukraine. By the way, I don't know what you guys' opinion are, but I'm looking at the Ukrainian people like, you guys go. Yeah, absolutely. You're rocking the shit out of this right now. I don't know how much of it's real, but of what I can see in the videos, I'm, I'm hats off to those people. That's yeah, take some strength. Definitely, from. definitely. And I, I think that's something that happened with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq as well. You know, when you got an you know, whether it be the West coming in or whoever coming in, you know, the local population will try and stand up and defend itself. And that's, you know, that's a good thing in a sense. But um, from what I'm seeing, um, I'm, you know, good on the Ukrainians for standing up to, you know, Putin and even some of the Russians themselves, you know, taking yeah. to St. Paul's, you know, uh, what, 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 you know, taking to the streets and saying no. Soldiers, put down your weapons. Don't do this. We don't want this. And, you know, people who've been through the Leningrad siege, you know, people that have seen the real war from Russia's side of point, you know, Russia's uh, past, you know, standing up and saying, we don't need this. Don't do this. It's not good for anybody. Yeah. You know, just lay down your weapons. And that's that amazes me when you see those sort of people standing up and going, hey, I've got experience with this. Let's not go here again. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that would make more sense. And, and it unprovoked and the whole thing is just kind of like, what are you doing, man? Like, yeah. <laughs> like where you just woke up one day and you were like, oh, I hate the world. Um, let's take Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> I like I, Belarus, but I don't like Ukraine. Yeah, let's let's just go down there. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, I the don't. Economic uh, advantage. It seems the kind of maybe the nuclear advantage, the strategic advantage that I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if Putin's completely, he is off of his rocker. Don't get me wrong. I don't agree with what he's doing, but you've seen if, some of the photos. If, if you're looking at what he could be trying to accomplish here, it's, it's scary to me. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, um, 
so I, I mean, in all honesty, whenever we were in Germany, all that kind of kicked off and I half expected them to say, Hey, guess where you're going. Um, and me to be like, okay, here we go again. Round three. Yeah, um, I think I texted you that <laughs> afternoon when I saw it. I was like, are you coming home on time? <laughs> and I didn't know at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, it was definitely interesting as I saw our guys start moving that way, um, to the bordering countries. And so it kind of gave me that sense of, of old time army, mm -hmm. like, Oh, here we go. You yeah. know, back at it, which is what everybody that joins the military really wants to do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, have you guys been affected as badly as we have with gas prices, fuel prices recently? And, and uh, um, I guess all the shipping problems and yada, yada, yada. Are you guys pretty much going through that with us? Yeah, yeah. So um, our fuel prices have uh, skyrocketed over the last two weeks. Uh, I think we're a bit over, uh, what is it? Uh Two two dollars a liter now for us. So I, th I still think comparison is you guys are probably a little bit dearer than us. But um, when you break it up to per gallon per liter sort of thing, but um, yeah, we're definitely feeling it and we're starting to see it. Mm. Yeah, it makes it a good time to be a runner. <laughs> All the more good time time to be in the oil industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this is true. yeah no doubt <clears throat> but yeah yeah i was curious i've been curious because we've been you know experiencing that just the past few days even um skyrocketing prices and i'm just like i don't know how well, i'm not going to be able to go up to the next pay grade and and survive yeah. Yeah. a little yeah. a little bit of that's probably a little false right uh, in that we're everybody's kind of afraid right now just with the impending ban on the Russian oil. Yeah. I think once we resolve that, things should at least come back a little bit. A little bit, yeah. 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 Well, so I hate to ask this question, but it's really annoying to me to see it on social media right now because you said that you're dealing with all the same things uh, in terms of the, the oil prices rising and the shipping issues. Um, is is Joe Biden doing that to you guys? To be honest, I don't know. Um, watching it from here, there are times where Joe Biden looks like he's fine, and then there's times where we don't know what's going on. Is he, is he losing it? Is he, you yeah. know, it's it just it does. At times, he doesn't seem, from from my point of view, he doesn't seem like a Let's let's use Obama as an example. You know, constant all the way through. Um, you know, it's almost like he's a little bit of, you know, Obama, a little bit of uh, Donald Trump. He's a little bit of something else. You know, I, I I don't know. It's I don't know whether it's affecting us, but um, yeah, it's just. I, I guess you even look at ours. Yeah, you know, ours is the same. Probably what you're seeing. You know, our our guys don't seem to be. You know, we're having a lot of health issues and stuff like that. Is the government stepping up correctly and stuff like that? Is it the media? Is it, you know, the, the various biases of the media that we're seeing these different aspects of? 
Is it, you know, a political gain of, you know, trying to show him in a vulnerable situation or a strong position, whichever way it goes? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. You know, we're not living it. So it's, for me, it's, it's a challenge to truly know exactly what's going on. You know, you, you even look at the UK president, you know, the prime minister, you know, having the parties through COVID. You know, was that a smart thing or was it not? And now you see him, he's, he's supported because he's, you know, putting these sanctions in against Russia. Mm-hmm. It's just ebbs and flows, same as here. You know, we've, we've yeah. got our two opposition parties here in Australia. They're fighting each other, you know, all the way through COVID. And now we're united because of Ukraine and Russia. Mm-hmm. Is it mm. just the media that's showing this or is it really what's happening? Oh, yeah. And, and that's, the, for me, that's... That's part of the reason why I loved intelligence because usually mm-hmm. I got a lot of the information up front. You know, I wasn't oh, a troop, you know, sitting on the ground as a, a, a basic grunt told to go and take this hill and I sit there and go, why am I taking this hill? And they go, you don't need to know that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that, mm-hmm. that sort of aspect, at least in the intelligence, you add the intel as to what's on that hill or what's going on or what the benefit of that hill is. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in amongst it, you don't really know what goes on. You're only fed what you're told to be fed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know a lot of our, I guess, society and everything else puts a lot of what's going on on the president, usually, typically, you know, whether that was Trump or whether that was is Biden now or Obama or whoever. And so I guess to us it's just everyday talk but <laughs> yeah yeah and, and everyone has their own you know different political as uh, ideal idealize forget it own political views um you know so yeah you might like obama you might like trump you might like biden you might like not like any of them you know that's that's mm-hmm. everybody's views and you know it's one of the things as they say don't don't talk politics at a party <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but well i just looked at my watch we're gonna have to wrap this up and actually i've got to uh go kiss a kid goodbye so or good night so yeah yeah you've got to Bye. be up in a few hours yeah i was gonna yeah. say <laughs> five <laughs> but well thank you kel for coming on here and sharing some knowledge with us and and uh the the running stuff was super interesting there's going to be a lot I'm going to take away from that just and to help other people. So thank you for all that free knowledge. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Super I'm I'm absolutely glad I can uh, share some of the knowledge I've learned over the years, but you know, from my experiences and and through my coaching and stuff like that. So it's always a pleasure to help and a pleasure to catch up. And hopefully I get over there and we get to catch up for a drink uh, uh, face to face. Oh, we'd love that. Yeah. Yeah, let us know whenever you're in uh, Nebraska. Yeah, uh, no, we definitely want to come to. The, we've done the east and west coast. We haven't done the middle part, so there's a few parts we got to do. There yep. you go. Nebraska, you said you started Nebraska. a coaching uh, class. Is this on something online that people can look up and and potentially look, reach out? So the, reach out. You know, they can reach out through my channels. Um, so I'm on Instagram as Kel the Marathoner. Um, I am developing a website and um, more of a coaching platform. Um, I'm on Training Peaks as Coach Cal. Um, I do do online coaching, so I can send you plans and stuff like that. It's just a matter of reaching out to me through uh, DMs at, on the uh, social media. So 
Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter are all the same. They all come through to me that way. Awesome. Well, we'll do yeah. our part to spread the word. Yeah. Get more runners honest. in the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, hey, man, and uh, enjoy uh, Australia because we can't. So that's right. No worries. <laughs> well, good. Well, love to see you down under soon. Yes. I'm yeah, for sure. On the Barbie. That's it. Plenty of shrimp. Plenty of shrimp down here. Maybe a uh, what's the a Vegemite sandwich? Vegemite sandwich, and we're also the only country that eats our coat of arms. Oh what? Did you know that fact? We're the only uh, country that eats our coat of arms, which is the emu and the kangaroo are on our coat of arms, and we both eat them. Oh, yeah. Because you don't eat the eagle. We don't eat the eagle. You can't even shoot that thing. You'll go to prison. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so you look at it uh, sideways, you might go, go, go to prison. So was, wasn't there, before we go, wasn't there one city or something in Australia that was overran by emus? I don't know about emus, but we've just recently gone through fires, floods, um, plagues of uh, rats and mice. Uh, we're going through it all down under here at the moment. So, so you're living the book of Revelations in the Bible right now. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's rain it's rain for fourteen days straight. So I think I think we're getting close to Noah's Ark here. Jeez Louise! Oh. <laughs> all right, man. Well, we'll talk to you later. And thank you once again. All right, thanks, thanks guys. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Yep.